Today, I'll be reading Matthew 9, from 9 to 17. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners." Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the, gar- the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Thank you, Anna, for reading today's passage. The question behind today's message is this, what kind of change does Jesus bring? My wife loves to redecorate. Usually her project begins with a few decorative pieces, but then the furniture is moved. New furniture pieces are considered, and walls are being painted. Sometimes it is turned into wall removal and new windows. This week I watched a story about heritage buildings in Dawson City, Yukon. Dawson City was the epicenter of the Klondike Gold Rush at the end of the 19th century. The town mushroomed to 40,000 overnight. With the influx of prospectors, buildings were constructed constructed quickly on on the permafrost without laying adequate foundations. Now, 125 years later, the heritage buildings are collapsing. The town is literally crumbling to the ground because the permafrost is thawing. To save the buildings and restore them to to their original form, Parks Canada is investing in new foundations and infrastructure that account for the freezing and melting of the permafrost. It is the only way to save the buildings. If you are imagining the renovation of your house, do you envision painting the exterior walls and maybe the interior walls? Or do you imagine a new foundation, the rebuilding of the walls? a new plumbing system, new wiring, and a new roof. If you are imagining the renovation of your life, do you imagine a few exterior alterations or a major renovation? What kind of change does Jesus bring? In the verses preceding our passage, Jesus said to a paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, and then proved he had that authority to forgive sins by healing him. The man rose up, picked up his mat, and walked home. What's next? 
Verse 9, as Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Jesus sees a tax collector, Matthew, sitting at his booth. Before we move on, we need to stop and consider who the tax collectors were. A tax collector was a man employed as a representative of the ruling authorities. In this case, Herod Antipas, a ruler who cooperated with Rome. So Matthew is a Jew who is selling out his own people to Roman occupation and rule. The Jews would have considered Matthew to be a traitor. Tax collectors had a reputation for getting rich by extorting more than was owed. They taxed produce, fish, income, imported and exported goods, roads, bridges, harbors, markets, pack animals, carts, everything. These taxes added a heavy burden to the local Jewish population. So tax collectors were despised and hated by their own people. Tax collectors were barred from synagogue services. They were ritually unclean because they had regular contact with non-Jews and they worked on the Sabbath. Any self-respecting Jew would not be found in their company. They would never be guests in their homes. What will Jesus do? The Gospel of Mark notes that Jesus is by the sea. Matthew is probably taxing fishermen in boats coming from the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. Imagine how popular he would have been with the disciples Jesus called in chapter 4. The four fishermen, Peter and Andrew, James and John. Jesus has already healed the marginalized, a leper, a Roman centurion's servant, a woman. He has broken down religious purity, ethnic and gender barriers. What will Jesus do? Verse 9 again. And he said to him, follow me. Though Matthew was politically, religiously, and socially unacceptable, Jesus was willing to call him a sinner, a man clearly under shame, to himself. Jesus was not ashamed to have Matthew in his company. What does Matthew do? Like the paralytic, he gets up and follows immediately. He has already witnessed Jesus' preaching and, and miracles in the small town of Capernaum. He's ready. The Gospel of Luke adds that he left everything, his position, job, and a lucrative income. What a change! Let's not miss the impact on Matthew's life. A fisherman could always go back to fishing, but a tax collector would not be able to return to his lucrative tax booth. Matthew leaves everything and follows. True faith leads to obedience. What have we left to follow Jesus. Some of us have left home, family, jobs, even countries to follow Jesus. Some of us have abandoned habits, addictions, and passions to follow Jesus. Some of us have left worldviews, ways of seeing, religions, and ideologies to see Jesus. Jesus brings a complete renovation. Matthew's decision to follow Jesus leads to something fascinating. Look at verse 10. And Jesus reclined at table in the house. Behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. The Gospel of Luke notes that Matthew has made a great feast for Jesus. And we read, behold, we're to take note of something unexpected. Matthew not only invites Jesus to his large affluent home, but he also invites many tax collectors and sinners as well. Luke writes, a large company. It's party time. 
this large group of tax collectors and sinners is most likely Matthew's group of friends. Matthew wants his friends to experience the same mercy, to find the same healing for their souls that he has experienced in Jesus' invitation to follow. So Matthew invites his friends to meet Jesus. True faith leads to action. Was it a comfortable atmosphere? Did the conversation flow? Were there moments of awkward silence? On numerous occasions, I've been invited to the parties of friends who have come to faith in Jesus. They have often introduced me as their pastor. After an awkward silence, their friends have often struggled to know what to do with me. Should they serve me beer and wine? Should they apologize for swearing? Will I laugh at their jokes? But in the awkwardness, there is opportunity for conversation and laughter and discovery. Are we willing to go to the awkward places? Or are we more interested in a safe life? Who are the friends we have invited to meet Jesus? Not everyone is so excited about Matthew's party. Verse 11, And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Why would the Pharisees not celebrate what Jesus was doing? Was it because they had not made the guest list? The Pharisees were a layman's fellowship, popular with the common people and connected to the local synagogues. They were known for rigorous observance of the law found in the Old Testament and all of the traditions they had added to the law in order to apply every detail to daily life. Thousands of commandments. They were determined to do everything in their power to be pure. They saw themselves as a renovation movement within Judaism. When they observed Matthew's party, they grumbled. The question put to Jesus' disciples was more of an accusation than a desire to understand. They are aghast because Jesus eats with sinners. To understand the revol- their revulsion, we need to understand the significance of table fellowship in the ancient world. Table fellowship defined group identity. There were strict boundaries around who could be included or excluded for a meal. In the minds of the Pharisees, if Jesus was sharing a meal with tax-collecting traders and sinners, he then identified with them and condoned their behavior. No respectable rabbi would eat with tax collectors, much less, much less invite one to follow him. Sinners, well, they included all those people guilty of publicly known sin, prostitutes, gamblers, criminals, tax collectors. For the Pharisees, sinners willfully ignored the correct boundaries of Jewish behavior. They were the undesirables. Eating with them would make one ritually unclean. No respectable rabbi would eat with sinners. But Jesus is different. He touches an unclean leper, touches the hand of a woman, is willing to go to the house of a Roman centurion, and is willing to enjoy a good meal with sinners, breaking all the social and religious conventions of his world. He not only shares a meal with unclean tax collectors and sinners, he does it in the unclean home of a tax collector. Are there associations we try to avoid? Our human nature is to form groups with whom we identify, sports teams, social clubs, political parties, religious groups. We usually associate with groups that bolster our identity, at least we think so. Which associations do we long for? Which ones do we run from? 
Would Jesus identify with our associations? For the Pharisees, Jesus is on the team of the undesirables. His action is scandalous. He has the wrong people on his friendship list. D.A. Carson writes, Expecting a Messiah who would crush the sinful and support the righteous, they, the Pharisees, had little place for one who accepted and transformed the sinner and dismissed the righteous as hypocrites. Jesus' kingdom life collides with the worldview of the Pharisees. He not only challenges their outward behavior, but he goes to the core of their worldview, their beliefs, their values. They are about outward piety and outward appearances. They only see the failures of sinners. Jesus sees broken people. Jesus is about the heart of the Father, a heart of mercy. The Pharisees do not understand Jesus' mission. He overhears their conversation with his disciples. Verse 12. But when he heard it, he said, Those who are well have no need of a a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus uses the metaphor of a doctor to clarify his mission. In Jesus' day, hospitals and doctor's offices did not exist. Doctors went to the sick. They made house calls. Jesus is a doctor of the soul. He makes house calls. If he is going to cure those who are sick in soul, he will have to go to where the people are. Matthew 1.21 says Jesus came to save his people from their sins. This promise of spiritual healing is one of the most distinctive features of Jesus' message. His mission was bathed in grace, a pursuit of the lost, a search for blatant sinners and social outcasts like Matthew. And it's fascinating how Matthew, the writer of this gospel, presents himself. As a tax collector, he would have had training in scribal techniques. He would have been able to write and keep records. He was probably fluent in Greek and Aramaic, well-suited to writing this gospel. But Matthew does not refer to himself in this way. Matthew is happy to put himself in the company of tax collectors and sinners, merely another sinner saved by grace. Do we place ourselves among the common sinners? The great Dutch painter, Rembrandt, was like Matthew. His museum is in Amsterdam. In his most famous painting of the crucifixion, he portrayed the characters one would expect in such a scene. Jesus, the two thieves, the soldiers, a large large crowd of onlookers. But down in the corner of the painting, you see a self-portrait of Rembrandt. He shared in the guilt of the crucifixion and was not afraid to admit it. Rembrandt also trusted in Jesus to save him from his sin. How do we identify ourselves? Matthew needed to be healed by Jesus, and like the paralytic, the sickness he most needed to have cured was his sin. We all come to Jesus as sinners saved by grace. Very unfortunately, however, over time, we can become like the self-righteous Pharisees. The Pharisees would have seen themselves as those who are well, those who are healthy before God because of their religious practice. They were doing their sacrifice, but their outward sacrifice masked their sin problem. So Jesus continues, verse 13. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. That's a quotation from Hosea 6.6. Jesus has something a rabbi would say. Go and learn what this means. Probably offensive to the scribes and Pharisees who prided themselves on understanding the law. But there was something they did not understand. What was it? 
God is more interested in mercy than religious activity. Their sacrifice. If the Pharisees had mercy in their hearts, they would care for sinners as Jesus did. If they were right with God, they would be going to the homes of the sick as Jesus was. Are our lives more marked by religious practice or by mercy? Jesus came not to call the righteous but sinners. His compassion for people was not only an emotion he felt for the crowds. He went to the people. He spoke to them, touched them, prayed with them, and ate with them. He called them to his wedding feast. This was the most basic character of Jesus' mission. By quoting Hosea, Jesus is reminding the Pharisees of ancient Israel, where religious leaders preserved the shell of Judaism while losing the heart of their faith. They were the bride who abandoned their bridegroom, God. Jesus is not simply telling the Pharisees that they should be more sympathetic toward tax collectors and sinners, but that they too are sinners. They need salvation. They need healing. Jesus is redefining for them what it means to be a sinner. A sinner is anyone who does not have God's heart. In Matthew 23, and Jesus reveals how he views their righteousness. They preach, but they do not practice. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. They love the place of honor at feasts. They love being called rabbi. They're blind guides. They neglect justice and mercy and faithfulness. They clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. They are whitewashed tombs full of dead people's bones. Wow. According to Jesus, the Pharisees are actually as paralyzed by their sin as the paralytic, as unclean as the despised tax collectors. But they are blind to their spiritual sickness. Their hearts are far from God. Their attitude towards sinners makes this even more evident. They desperately need the mercy, forgiveness, and restoration that Jesus is bringing. Michael Wilkins writes, Sin is not cured by religion. Sin is an inner spiritual sickness that must be honestly acknowledged to be incurable by one's own attempts at religious righteousness. Sin is cured only by the great physician, Jesus This message, it threatens the Pharisees. It rattles their worldview. It challenges their self-righteousness. They diligently study the scriptures. If they're not living upright lives, well, then who is? What's missing? Are we still bringing our own righteousness to God? Another group comes to Jesus, the disciples of John the Baptist. They also have a question about Jesus' message and ministry. Verse 14 Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Perhaps the scene of Jesus and his entourage feasting at Matthew's house provokes this question. In Israel, there were normal fasts from food, like Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. There were partial fasts from meat and wine, like Daniel in Babylon. There were absolute fasts from all food and water, like Esther in Persia. And there was one fast required by the law of Moses on the Day of Atonement. The Pharisees had gone far beyond this Old Testament practice. They were fasting twice a week, and by their appearance, they let 
everyone know it. Why were Jesus' disciples not fasting as a spiritual discipline or a sign of repentance? Verse 15, and Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus draws on the metaphor of a wedding to explain the conduct of his disciples. Wedding festivities, which usually went on for several days, were a symbol of joy and celebration. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is Yahweh among them. The age of the messianic bridegroom has dawned. The arrival of the kingdom of heaven on earth is a time for rejoicing for Jesus' disciples, the wedding guests. When the bridegroom is taken, then they will fast. The word taken, while well, it suggests a violent and unwelcome removal, predicting Jesus' arrest, trial, death, and crucifixion. After his trial, death, and resurrection, the disciples will regularly pray and fast. We see that in the book of Acts. But now is the time to party. Are we enjoying the feast of Jesus' presence now? Jesus explains what his kingdom is bringing with two more metaphors. Verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. What is Jesus saying? A piece of unshrunk cloth, tightly sewed to old, well-shrunk cloth, will tear the garment even more. Jesus does not come to patch up the Jewish religious traditions. Rather, he offers new garments of righteousness, the wedding garments of the kingdom, purchased through his death and resurrection. Also, new wine is not put into old wineskins. Wineskins were made of animal hide, leather, With time, the wineskins would become harder and more brittle. New wine still fermenting inside old wineskins would split the brittle animal hide, ruining both the container and the new wine. New wine was only poured into new wineskins, pliable and elastic enough to accommodate the pressure of fermentation. Jesus did not come to patch an old garment. He also did not come to pour his kingdom life into the old forms of Jewish tradition. He did not come to shore up traditional Jewish practices. Why would Jesus fill that container of hypocrisy with new wine? Jesus' kingdom life demands an entirely new garment, an entirely new wine. He did not come to patch up our old religious practices. He did not come to add just a bit more flavor to an already well-constructed life. Jesus did not come to just fill your coffee cup with new wine. He did not come to give you something that would go better with your cheese. He came to fill you, your entire being, with new wine, drench you in new wine, make you swim in new wine. He came to offer true healing and new life. Have our lives been filled with new wine? What does the path of the new wine look like? It begins when we surrender fully to Jesus and the filling of the Holy Spirit. We enter into a living relationship with God the Father. What kind of renovation does the new wine bring? 
When we're on this path of new wine, we enjoy the feast of Jesus' presence. We do not just study the Scriptures to grow in our understanding. The Spirit of God speaks to us through the Scriptures, and it renovates our hearts. Our worldview has transformed our beliefs and values. When we're on this path of new wine, we do not just pray a list of requests. We're in conversation with God, asking for His heart, praying what He would pray. We do not just attend a church service. We are church. We're united by the Spirit of God. We're doing life together. Sometimes, when we're doing a house renovation, something doesn't get finished. A wall remains unpainted. A piece of baseboard is missing. For the first few weeks, the unpainted wall and missing baseboard really bother us. After a while, we think about it every now and then. And then, we become so accustomed to the unpainted wall and missing baseboard that we no longer see it. What have we become accustomed to in our lives that actually needs renovation? When we are filled with the new wine of Jesus, it brings a complete renovation of the heart. When we are filled with his new wine, we leave things to follow him. We bring friends to him. We identify ourselves as common sinners saved by grace. Our lives are marked by mercy for broken sinners. More and more, we carry God's heart. Are our lives being filled with his new wine today? Are we just putting out our coffee cup? Or are we surrendering our lives completely to the filling of his spirit? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for inviting us to your feast. We thank you that you offer us new garments, garments of righteousness purchased by you through your death and resurrection. If we can place ourselves before the Father and enter his presence, it's because of the garments of righteousness that you have given us. You've purchased us through your sacrifice. And it's because of your sacrifice that we can be filled with new wine, the new wine of your spirit. And so, Jesus, we ask you to bring a complete renovation of our hearts. Forgive us for those ways that we have become blind to our own sinfulness, the ways that we have neglected to actually fully surrender our lives to you. And so, again, Jesus, we ask that you fill us with yourself Life is in you. You are the way, the truth, and the life. And so we ask you, Jesus, to do a new work in us. May we live for your glory. May we reach out to those who need to know you. May we welcome sinners to our table. May we identify with them and share the new life that we have in you with them. Jesus, do a new work among us. We want to be your people living for your glory. Have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to leave some questions with you for your reflection. God bless.